The young man that you are about to see is a great theologian. Take a look. Jeremiah, I have a question. What's up? Why would a good God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. Actually, we we're already on our way to hell. And what God did is he gave us a way out. It's like being on a ship that's sinking and someone's like, hey, there's a lifeboat. You can choose to get on the lifeboat, but if you reject the lifeboat, you automatically go down with the ship. It's the same thing. Our sin was already taking us to hell. And God gave us Jesus and says, this is a lifeboat. But if you reject the lifeboat, you're automatically going where you are already headed. God didn't send you there. Wow. Wow. That is just great theology right from the driver's seat of his car. That is great theology. It really is. Jesus is a lifeboat that changes the course of eternity for us. Those that get into a relationship with him, get on the boat. Those that reject it, stay on the path they were already on. If you ever have people ask you about how a good God could send somebody to hell, you remember this young man, and all you have to do is in 38 seconds sum it up for him. That is really, really good stuff and very direct. I want us to spend our time this morning looking at what it means to get on the lifeboat, to have Jesus come into our life and change the course of eternity for us. In order to do that, though, I'm going to switch metaphors, and we're going to take a hike together through Scripture, through the Gospel of John, to be exact. If you brought a Bible with you, open up to John's Gospel, and we are going to make eight stops along this hike. I would call this the Declaration Trail. So if you just want to follow me all the way through that, you're welcome to. This is the Declaration Trail. Each one of these stops is going to show us somebody either getting on the lifeboat or declaring that they are the lifeboat. Eight stops, eight passages of Scripture. Listen close for the declaration. Starting with John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, we will pick up in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the declaration. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John got on the boat. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. What a declaration. We're still in John chapter 1. Let's take a look at Nathanael's account, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, 
Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now let's skip forward to John chapter 5. And you're going to hear Jesus' own declaration of who he is. Verse 25. Speaking of his authority as the Son of God. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Wonderful declaration from Jesus as he says, I am the Son of God. The time is coming when people will hear my voice and those who respond will live. They'll get on the lifeboat. They'll get on the boat and they'll change the course of everything. Let's go to John chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 67. John chapter 6, verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? A lot of the disciples, the believers, the early church, they were leaving Jesus because of some hard teaching. So Jesus said to the twelve, the only ones that remained, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, we're going to keep moving. Like I said, we're on a hike. So let's go to chapter 9, verse 1. It's a fantastic account that John recorded for us. A man who has his life changed by Jesus. Listen close, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. When everyone else saw that man and what had happened to him, they could not believe what he told them. Literally, they could not believe what he told them, that Jesus had done this for him. They doubted, they questioned, they scoffed, they mocked, they would not believe. This man did. When he went back to Jesus, this is what happened. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. 
Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, or say, we see, your guilt remains. I love this blind man who received his sight from the Lord. And he said, I believe and worshiped him. That was his declaration. We're still on the trail, so let's go to John chapter 11, verse 25. We're about to meet Martha. Martha is a friend of the Lord's, but she's upset with him. Her brother had gotten sick, and she sent word to Jesus, expecting that Jesus would come and heal him, and Jesus didn't. He didn't. He remained where he was at. He was looking a lot further down the trail than Martha could. The Lord does that often, and a lot of times when we don't receive the answers that we're looking for, it's because God's looking further down the trail than we can, and he sees what needs to happen. So she's upset with him when Jesus says this. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, that is good stuff. Then we move on to places like this in John chapter 20, still on the trail. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And there's just one more stop. It's also in chapter 20. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the author's declaration. That's John's declaration of who Jesus is. Put them all together, and it is an incredible, incredible trail of belief. The reason that John's book is so popular is because it contains things just like this. Accounts of people moving from the realm of unbelief to belief. And they are so varied that most of us can find ourselves somewhere in the midst of one, at least one, of those faith accounts, one of those testimonies. So as a result of that, when people are wondering where to start in reading the Bible, a lot of folks will say, you start in the Gospel of John. It's very personal. It is written very easy. But you can find yourself in those accounts. Let's break them down real quick. Here they are for you once again, all of them up on the screen. John the Baptist, 
moved into his declaration of belief because he had witnessed the supernatural. God told him what he was going to see. He saw the supernatural and he believed. For Nathaniel, it came about in a, a really incredible way. He was skeptical, mocking. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But then he found out that Jesus knew him personally. He was moved by that. How did you know me? How do you know who I am? Nathaniel discovered the vastness of God and the smallness of himself and the way the two come together. And he declared his belief. Jesus' own declaration we can remove from this part of our exploration because he's Jesus. He was simply saying, people are going to see me and they are going to believe. Peter, and interestingly, by proxy, the other apostles made his declaration when nobody else was willing to, when everybody else was just moving away from the Lord. Peter planted a stake and said, I believe, we believe. Where else would we go? You have the words of life, and those words have changed us. Where else would we go? We're going to stay right here. The healed blind man. What a story. That man made his declaration because his life had been changed by the Lord. It had been miraculously changed by the Lord. So he declared what he believed. Even when others were trying to convince him that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, that Jesus couldn't have been the one that could do this, the blind man said, I know what I know and you aren't going to tell me anything else. I know what I know. And he made his declaration and the Bible says he worshiped. Martha, longtime friend of the Lord, close friend of the Lord. Even as she was struggling through the circumstances and situations that were happening right then in real time in her life, all she had to do was listen to the heart of the Lord, and she believed. And then there was Thomas. We'll come back to Thomas. And even John. John said, I've recorded all these things. I've written them all down because I have believed so strongly. I want others to believe. I want them to have what I have. So he wrote them down. His declaration was with his pen in hand. This is what I know to be truth, and I want you to know it too. Everyone who reads my words, I want them to know it too. That's how strong his declaration was. But Thomas's. Thomas's came about in kind of an interesting way. He had to battle through some things. He had to battle through some traps that the enemy set for him. He had to battle through to get to a place where he could say so boldly, my Lord and my God. Wasn't an easy path for him. One of the biggest challenges that Thomas faced was what I would refer to, and many other people would as well, as his natural bents. He had to overcome his natural bents, skepticism and doubt. They were default settings for him, and, and when he struggled, he could go back there pretty easily. That's why we know him as Doubting Thomas. It was a natural bent in his life. Now, that may not make sense to you, so let me define it just a little further. If you're not sure what a bent is, this is a pretty good definition. It is a tendency, a disposition, or an inclination. Parents and grandparents dial in really tight. Listen to me here. Everybody else, listen as well. Listen to this. 
Everyone has natural bents. Every child has natural bents. Every grandchild has natural bents. Children are different from one another. You cannot raise them the same because of their natural bents. As you deal with other people, particularly in the realm of faith, you have to understand natural bents in order to communicate the right things in the right way. Otherwise, you may just feel like you're doing this because their natural bents, their tendencies, their disposition, or their inclinations can be pushing back against you. That's what was happening with Thomas. His natural bent of doubt was raging. It happens all the time. So if parents are wise enough to recognize that with each of their kids, there are natural bents that make them different one from the other, you can get a long ways down the road in helping to encourage them to become the person that God created them to be. Grandparents, you can do the exact same thing. As you look at your grandchildren, know that they have natural bents and speak to those bents so that you can help them mature and grow to become the person that God wanted them to be. I like the way an author out of the Flathead Valley captures this whole idea. I love that, that she is from Kalispell, and I love that she wrote what she did. Her name is Christy Fitzwater, and she wrote an article titled, Raise Your Kids According to Their Natural Bent. Listen to what she says. Be a nurse, he said, and I listened to him because he was my dad. His reasoning was that the world always needs nurses, so I would have a guaranteed income. But dad, with his math brain and love for all things science, did not see that I was a girl who excelled with words. I cried my way through high school chemistry and pre-calculus, but took Shakespeare just for fun. While he was trying to impress me with the ins and outs of electricity flow, I was submitting articles to Reader's Digest trying to get published. So I arrived at college with a stethoscope tucked in my bag, a graduation gift from my aunt, who was a nurse. But at the end of the first semester, I was calling Dad in tears because I was about to flunk my first science class. At the end of my freshman year, I was in a required English course. At the end of class one day, the professor asked me to stay. She held in her hands a paper I had recently turned in. What is your major, she asked. Nursing, I replied. You're an excellent writer. Why aren't you an English major? I don't know, I said. That very day I talked to Dad and then changed my major. The truth was that I was not an English major because my dad did not see my gift with words as something valuable. Now look at me. I'm a published author and a high school Spanish teacher. I also write Bible studies for the small groups at my church. Language is my thing. Of course, my dad only had my welfare in mind as he encouraged me to be a nurse, but he failed to look beyond his own passions to help me excel and proceed in mine. So then I became a parent. My husband and I kept our eyes open to see which way our kids were bent. It happened that God gave them both a gift for music, so we paid for band instruments and then voice lessons. Later, my son showed an interest in the guitar, so we bought him one for Christmas and funded guitar lessons. He ended up being good enough to lead worship music. Our son is now 20, and this last year he began vlogging, which is a hoot. He's amazing at video editing, and he even uses a program to write his own background music for his videos. This Christmas, my husband got a Christmas bonus, and we used it to help my son get a really nice video monitor. We want to encourage him in the gifts God has given him. 
My advice to you is that you start praying and asking God to show you how he has shaped each one of your children. Then assist and encourage each child to grow and excel in that direction as much as you can. You'll find it's a joy to see your child blossom in his natural talents, even if those talents are drastically different from your own gifts and passions. If you think about it, God does the same thing with us. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. God masterfully creates each person in a unique way and then designs good work that fits each person. Sit back and look at your kids today, even if they're all grown up. How has God made your child, and how can you encourage and support his or her unique passions and abilities? And then she signs it, much love from Montana. That's really good teaching. Well, Jesus picked up on that same idea when he chose to speak to the natural bents of Thomas. Let's go back in and look at that story again. I want you to see how the Lord speaks life to him. We'll pick up in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas's natural bent was raging. It was raging. When the other disciples told him what they had seen on resurrection day, on that Sunday after the crucifixion, what they had experienced, it did not matter. Thomas said, Unless I see it for myself... Unless I put my fingers in the holes, unless I stick my hand in his side, it will not matter. I doubt everything you're saying to me. He had heard Jesus speak of the crucifixion. He had heard Jesus speak of the resurrection. He had now experienced both, but could not believe. His natural bents were raging. And because of it, he was balancing between faith doubts, and unbelief. As we go back through Scripture, we know that faith was knocking right at his door before the crucifixion. Even a bold faith. Join me back in John chapter 11, will you? Take a look at this. When Jesus got word that Lazarus, his friend, was sick, Mary and Martha wanted him to come. He was outside of Judea, outside of the region of Bethany where Lazarus lived. The Jews in Judea had tried to kill him. So his disciples were saying, Let, let's not go back. Just a couple days ago, they were trying to kill you. Let's not go back. We don't want to go back. We don't want to have to do that. And then Lazarus died, and Jesus said in verse 14, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Now listen to the bold, courageous faith of Thomas. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He was bold enough to say, if Jesus is going back, let's go too. If Jesus is going to be killed, let's go, we'll die with him. There was a bold, courageous faith. 
We know as we continue on in the Gospel of John that there was a spiritual sensitivity in his life. We know that about Thomas. John chapter 14, verse 5. Well, we'll start in verse 1. Listen to this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, Jesus says. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, there's our friend Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? A little bit of doubt. He just heard what Jesus had to say, but here's that natural bent. Still, he is spiritually minded. So Jesus said to him, and this is some of the most powerful teaching from the Messiah in all of the Gospels, and it comes as a result of Thomas's natural bent, his bent towards doubt. And as a result of that, Jesus gives us this gift of understanding. Jesus said to him, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the lifeboat. I am the lifeboat. John chapter 14, verse 6 just lays it out. Simple authority. Those are the words of Jesus. Simple authority to drive the whole point home. Thomas was spiritually minded. But after the crucifixion, he was wrestling with unbelief. He was struggling against it. His natural bent was raging. Do I believe? Do I not? His doubts were pushing him. They were pushing him towards the unbelief side. Friends, I want you to know this. Doubt is an intellectual issue. It comes as a result of, of us saying, I want to believe something, but there is too much stacked up on me to get there right now. It's where questions come from. Doubt is not sin. You've probably heard me say before that doubt is the stone on which faith is sharpened. Doubt is not a sin. It is an intellectual problem, an intellectual issue. It is a natural bent that people have to push their way through, sometimes in curiosity, sometimes in skepticism. Doubt is an intellectual issue. Unbelief is a moral problem. Unbelief comes when a person says, no matter what I have heard, no matter what anyone else says, no matter what evidence has been put in front of me, I will not believe. You've probably met people like that. Unbelief is a moral problem. Unbelief keeps you on a path to hell. Unbelief says that no matter what is happening, no matter how high the water is getting, no matter how tough the storm is, I'm not getting on the boat. I don't believe the boat's going where I want it to go. I'll go down on this ship. It's a moral problem. That's the difference between doubt and unbelief. The writer of Hebrews would actually tell us that unbelief is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I want you to see this for yourself. Join me in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. This is a powerful, pointed warning from the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I want you to listen again. Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It doesn't get more pointed than that. Take care, brothers, because if you stay on this path, if you stay on this sinking ship of unbelief, you will fall further and further away from the living God. And there is a point that the writer of Hebrews will bring up a little bit later where the ship goes down and you can no longer accept the offer to get on the lifeboat. It's too late. It's too late. That's why he says, take care, brothers. If you're pushing towards unbelief, you are in dangerous territory. If you're doubting, that's an intellectual issue. Get the answers you need. Ask the questions that you need to. Push through that. But don't go all the way over here towards unbelief because that ship's sinking. And when it sinks, the end result is already set. There is no way off of it. When it goes down, it goes down. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. So Jesus, so Jesus spoke to the natural bent of Thomas. He said, I, I know Thomas. I know who you are. Jesus spoke life to him. He spoke through the bent to change everything for him. But it took a little while. You see, after the crucifixion, on the day of the crucifixion, the world was turned upside down. Really, no more so than for the disciples, the 11 of them that remained. Judas had already taken his life. The 11 that remained, they didn't know what tomorrow held. They didn't know what the future looked like. Jesus died on the cross. They saw it. He'd been buried. Oh, they'd heard everything that he had said about both things, the crucifixion and the resurrection. They didn't know what they were going to do. Ten of the eleven that remained were together on Resurrection Sunday. And they saw Jesus. It was three days of spiraling for them. They saw Jesus. Thomas wasn't there. It's a good question to ask. Why not? Where was he? The Bible doesn't tell us, so all we can do is speculate. It's possible that his doubt was raging so hard that it had turned into anger. It's possible that his doubt was raging so hard it turned into depression or discouragement. Whatever it was, he stayed away. He wasn't there on the Lord's day. There's a pretty good warning for us right there as well. Our doubts can rage. We can be depressed or discouraged. Life can be crashing down on us. And we can say to ourselves, well, it's the Lord's day, but I'm not going to church. I'm not going to go. I'm upset. I'm not going to go. I'm disappointed. I'm not going to go. I'm discouraged or I'm depressed. I'm going to stay away. Well, be careful of that and just use Thomas's life as an example of why. Because he wasn't there, he didn't see Jesus. Sometimes when you choose not to come to church, other people experience things that you're not going to get to experience. They're going to see the Lord in ways that you don't get to see the Lord because you didn't come. Because you stayed away. The writer of Hebrews again will speak to that very issue. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, listen close. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
One of the other things we have to remember is we don't just come to church because of what we will receive. We come to church and we gather with other believers because of what we bring to them. Your life, your presence, your experiences can be an encouragement, will be an encouragement if you share them with other people. Thomas stayed away eight days. Eight days, John 20 tells us. Eight days he was spiraling. Eight days he was left thinking, I won't believe until I see this. I won't believe until my finger goes in that hole. I won't believe until I put my hand in his side. For eight days he was left with that. Those had to be horrible days. Horrible days. But then entered Jesus. I love how Jesus enters. They were all together. Thomas was with them. Eleven days later, eight days after the disciples had experienced the resurrection, eight days later, so eleven days, they were together. Door was locked. Why was the door locked? They were not popular people in Jerusalem right now. Jesus had died. The door was locked because there was a price on their heads. Jesus came through the door. He didn't knock. It wasn't a secret knock, and they answered. He walked through the door. You know how he did that? He was God. That's how he did that. Locked doors do not keep God out. He walks through locked doors. By all appearances in John chapter 20, when he walked through those locked doors, it's just by all appearances, he walked past the ten and went right to Thomas. He went right to Thomas. And he said, all right, Thomas, stick out your hand. Here's the hole in my side. You want to see the holes in my hands? Here they are. Stick your finger in. He spoke directly to his doubts. He spoke directly to his doubts. Now, here's the coolest thing about this account. There is no reason in the Gospels for us to believe that Thomas ever put his finger in the hole or put his hand in the side. There is every reason for us to believe that he saw Jesus and he believed. And that was all it took. He saw Jesus and that was enough. That was enough. And in that moment, he said this, my Lord and my God. He made his declaration and he got on the boat. And nothing in church history or in scripture tells us that he ever tried to step off. He got on the boat. The natural bent didn't seem to ever rage for him again, at least not in his faith. He stayed on the boat, and he was saved. Great declaration. In that moment, he was sealed. He was sealed in his walk with God. If you'll give me two minutes, I want to wrap up this message by talking about that seal. In order to do that, you've got to join me in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be done in two minutes, so go with me. Ephesians chapter 1. This is worth the extra time. Verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now here's what the Bible's teaching. Paul does this so well. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you tie it all together in baptism, you're obedient to the word of God, you are sealed 
with the Holy Spirit. Well, I took that idea this last week and I went digging around in Scripture looking at different seals. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of things you can study on seals in Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. In the Old Testament, kings would seal things. God would seal things. He told Daniel, seal up the words of this book until the appointed time. There's a lot of different seals that you find in Scripture. The most popular one and probably the most well-known one happens in the New Testament. At the death of Jesus, we read about it in Matthew chapter 27. After they put Jesus in the grave, the governor said this. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can, speaking of the tomb of Jesus. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, most scholars would tell you that when they sealed the stone, they stretched two ribbons across the stone, and at each end of the ribbon, they put a wax seal that held it in place. In essence, when the governor's seal, the Roman seal, went up in front of that tomb, they were saying, don't you cross this line. There are consequences, and for the Romans, the consequences were big. If you cross this line, well, you'll deal with the governor, and that'll probably mean death. Nobody was ever going to cross that line. Nobody was ever going to break that seal from the outside of the tomb. But the question is, how well did that seal work? (laughs) Not very good, because Jesus broke the seal. But he did it from the inside. He did it from the inside. When the stone rolled away and Jesus walked out of the grave, and make no mistake, Jesus walked out of the grave. Nobody went in and got him. Jesus walked out of the grave. He broke the seal. When he broke that seal, it changed everything. So in Ephesians chapter 1, we have the Apostle Paul telling us about being sealed in the Holy Spirit. Now listen. You listen close. That means that when you have given your life to the Lord and you've tied it all together and you're walking with God, the Lord has sealed you in the Holy Spirit and nothing from the outside will ever break that seal. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Neither height nor depth, neither angels or demons. Nothing will separate you from the love of God from the outside. But you can break the seal from the inside. You can choose to walk through that. And unbelief will do it. Unbelief will do it. You'll start to fall further and further away from the Lord. That's why eight days can be a dangerous time. Eight days can be a a tough period for us to work our way through. We have to decide which side of the seal we're going to stay on. I'm going to stay on the inside. I'm going to stay in the relationship sealed by God, protected by God, because I like it. Even in those moments where natural bents rage, I'm going to stay sealed by God. I hope you do the same. You stay sealed. You stay behind it. And nothing will ever break it. That is God's authority. That's his word on the issue. Trust it. Take it to the bank. Because God says what he means, and he means what he says. And when he seals it, he will protect it. And nothing will ever touch it. Be careful of the eight days because it's then that we are tempted to bust through the seal. Don't break it. Stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, I'm grateful that you seal us in your love. 
I'm grateful that our declarations of belief become the visible sign of us getting on the boat. So thank you for sending our rescue. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son to die for us. That those of us who see and believe and reach out can be pulled right onto that boat. Thank you for the lifeboat, Lord.